That was fantastic, beautiful, those lyrics. I'm looking forward to singing that more. Um, You know, today is a a beautiful day in so many ways, but it's also a a day of uh, a remembrance for us as a country because this is September 11th. And I know there's several in this room uh, who weren't alive at that time, who, who weren't there, or maybe you were really little and you don't remember it. Uh, but it was a time of, of uh, just a, a massive shock for those of us who were. And uh, I was just thinking about it this week. I remember waking up and I remember our neighbor uh, who was from New York actually just, just you know, we're under attack, you know, and you're just kind of like, ah, oh, you know. Um, but something that, that really, really struck all of us was the courage of the first responders, these were men and women who, as the towers were burning and as they were on fire, rather than running away, they ran towards it. They ran towards it to rescue people. They ran towards it um, because they knew that they could save some lives. And many of them paid the ultimate price with that. And so... Uh, I want, I want to think about that just for a moment as first responders. There are some people in this room who have served as first responders, some who, who are. Um, there are others. We have family who serve in that capacity or we know someone. I, th- I think we should care for them and I think we should thank God for them in a special way uh, for several reasons. One would be this. They are willing to sacrifice themselves. Uh, you think of what Jesus said in John 15. He says, no greater love has anyone than this than that he lay down his life for his friends? And first responders, when they leave home every day, they are very much aware of that fact, that, that this day could be a day where they put themselves in a position to actually lay down their lives to rescue others. In many ways, they're emulating Christ in that. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul, he, he thought about that. He said, there are few people, it's rare, he said, that someone would die for, for a just person. And of course, he's talking about how God himself gave his own life to die for not those who were just, but those like us who are unjust. How much greater is his love? But the, the sacrifice that these men and women make, they really can and do point us to the greater sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, they're under a lot of psychological and physical stress, um, there's, there's various articles that you can read on the difficulties that they go through as people. And um, for those that know the Lord especially, I know many personally in my life who love to use what they do to point to Jesus and to help people in that place of, of trial and difficulty. So, so in light of that, in, in, in light of this day, 9-11, and in light of the first responders among us or those that we know, let's just have a word of prayer right now for them, can we? Lord, we, we come to you and we ask that uh, you would be at work in a special and beautiful way in, in the lives of the men and women who, who serve this community, our nation, uh, as first responders. Uh, for those that know you, Lord, that you would especially encourage them and, and, and even bless them in their efforts to point to really the, 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 the greatest sacrifice ever given in Jesus through the sacrifices that they make. For others that don't know you, Lord, we would ask that these days would be seasons in which they would hear about your glorious gospel and that they would return to you, that they would be born again, that they would know life in you. Uh, we thank you, especially for those amongst us who have served in this way, 
or do serve in this way. And we pray a special encouragement upon them in this time. And we ask that we as a church would, would do well in caring for them as they care for so many. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this week has been a kind of a wild week. Uh, maybe you've uh, heard all the coverage of the Queen and, and uh, the Queen of England and her, her, her passing. And uh, I, I've seen several things. I'll be honest with you, I get tired of the news cycle sometimes. You ever that way where you're like, okay, enough already, you know, move on, turn, you know. But I did hear an account of her that actually wasn't on the news. It was just a personal, someone was conveying this idea. And I, I thought, wow, what a fascinating story. Because um, here, here's what happened. Apparently, one of the queen's uh, jobs is to go up to parliament. And apparently, when they're about to engage in something, she kind of kicks it off. And so she was on her way to that place. And of course, her escorts brought her into the elevator. And they inadvertently pressed the wrong button on the elevator. So rather than it being... The parliament floor, what happened is it came up to the maintenance floor, <laughs> and the doors open, and in the meantime, a, a, a woman who worked there, who was, who was one of those who, who tended to cleaning and other things, she had a massive container that she had a bunch of dirty t- towels in, and she was just pushing it into the elevator without even looking up, and so she just kind of pushes it right on in, then she looks up, and she realizes she's just pin- pinned the Queen of England <laughs> against the back of the elevator. And then she said something very unbecoming to say in front of the Queen of England. And the Queen's standing there and her attendant's next to her. And they're standing there. And there's this just an awkward moment. And all of a sudden, the Queen starts to laugh. <laughs> she just starts laughing. And from there, uh, they have a little conversation. And after this little event, what happened is the Queen actually invited her to tea. And... From then on, every year, she would have her to the palace for tea. And you kind of look at that, and it kind of gives you a window into what the person's like, and it's an uncommon thing to have someone in such a place of regal power act in that way towards someone else who we would see as being in a completely different status in life. And it amazes us. And I feel like when we look at God and we see the way he responds to sinners like you and me in over and above what we've just seen, in ways that are beyond our comprehension in terms of grace, in terms of faithfulness, in terms of love, in terms of patience, we kind of just take that for granted because he's God. But my goal for us today is as we spend time together in the book of Hosea, we're going to see God's faithfulness in such a way that we won't simply just sweep it off as something that's kind of, well, he's God, but instead that we'd be gripped by it. That we would see that the way God responds to us as sinners in demonstrating his faithfulness is so much more extraordinary than even the Queen of England in acting toward this, this person who was there to simply clean the building. And so we're going to continue our journey through the book of Hosea as we embark upon chapters 9 through 11 today. And if you haven't been with us and you're not familiar with with the prophet Hosea, God has called this prophet to live his life in a very unique and odd way in order to depict God's relationship with his people, Israel. 
And so he actually tells Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a woman of harlotry. A woman who is unfaithful. A woman who is an adulteress. I want you to marry her because the picture of your life with her is going to be the picture of my life with my people. And so we find the theme of the entire book of Hosea is the faithless people of Israel and the faithful God towards those faithless people. And so as we go through the the book, we found that um, as she engaged, as, as Gomer, his wife, engaged in harlotry, and different children were born, first of which most likely being Hosea's child, the second and third not, most likely, Hosea's children. And their names would reflect that. He named one not my people. He named the other without mercy. Um, These are all pictures, again, of God's relationship with Israel. Eventually, uh, Gomer ends up being so given over to the lustful adultery of her life that she finds herself with a cruel man who ends up selling her into slavery. And there she is in the marketplace, and Hosea shows up to see his faithless wife there. And as the people of the community are no doubt looking on, going, there it is, Hosea is seeing her right now, looking at her, and he's going to see justice done. Instead, the shock of all shocks is he actually outbids others who are trying to purchase her. He buys her, and rather than buying her for the purpose of enslaving her, he buys her in order to free her. He redeems her. In, in, in the very face of all that she's done to him. And then the rest of the book unfolds that very picture before us uh, in terms of Israel and God. And different images are used and different uh, pictures are used to communicate that. And by the time we, we come to chapter 9, we, we again see God's faithfulness towards a faithless people. And, and the first thing we would find is this. God is faithful. And because he is faithful, he disciplines his people. We see this in chapter 9. Um, if you'll notice, uh, it says there, do not rejoice, O Israel, with the exaltation like the nations. And you're going, well, what's that talking about? Well, the nations around Israel, they all had certain things. And Israel, rather than trusting God, rather than resting in God's promises, rather than seeking God, rather than running after Yahweh, they decided to do things the way those around them were doing things. Why? Because they wanted crops. They wanted food. They wanted success. They wanted prosperity. They wanted security. And so what did they do? Well, just like anybody else at that time, they set up a temple to Baal. Because that was the fertility God. And then they would engage in, in, in temple prostitution and other acts of, of worshiping Baal. Actions that were... That were completely abhorrent. And God is is looking at their faithlessness. And so when he's describing here in chapter 9 all these different ways in which they have forsaken God, really what's happening is they are trying to emulate the people around them. Um, So go ahead and if you would open to Hosea 9. And let's stand and, and honor God's word. Follow along as I read the first section of that. Hosea 9. 
Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exaltation like the nations, for you have played the harlot forsaking your God. You have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and, Assyria, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled, for their bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will overtake their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to grasp and see and understand your faithfulness in the face of the faithlessness of your people. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would respond to you today by way of repentance, that we would not fall into the same idolatrous trap that captured your people back in these days. Grace us, Lord, to see you clearly, to draw near to you, the faithful God. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So as God is demonstrating his faithfulness here, he's disciplining his people. And you think, well, man, what? How is that, you know, faithful? Well, God really loves them. And if he really loves them, he's going to deal with their sin. Some of you here are parents. You know what that's like. When you have your kids and you've got to discipline them, you're not going, yay, I get to discipline my kids. You know, that's not what you're doing. You're going, oh, really? We got to do this? We're really going to go here today? Okay. Um, and that does happen with our kids sometimes. But, but all of us as kids, maybe there have been times when we've experienced that from a parent. And it's really important that we don't confuse this with, with some of the you know, abusive relationships that perhaps some have endured here uh, with parents. This is not what God's like. God is not an abusive parent. No, he's a loving parent. And in doing so, whenever he executes justice or discipline, it's always completely in line with the offense every time. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, with some parents, you know, you, you feel like... Uh, and maybe as a parent, you've been tempted to do this. Okay, well, the kid did not, let's say, the, you know, whatever, the bathroom sink is, is a mess. I'm sure your kids always leave the bathroom sink perfectly clean, right? But let's just hypothetically say it's not, you know? Stuff's left out, toothpaste, whatever. And so the parent walks in there and sees that and says, you know what, because of that, you're grounded for the next 18 years, you know? That's not going to work. They're going to be in their 20s before then. Like, you can't really pull that off. Why are you doing that? It's not in proportion with the crime, with what's been done. But notice here, what is God doing in chapter 9? He's actually reversing uh, the history of Israel. He's, he's, he's using history kind of, if it's almost like the history of Israel, when you see Egypt and God rescuing them in Egypt and the way God led them through the wilderness and the way God brought them into the promised land, he set them free from captivity. Now, he's like, you've rejected me. You don't want to walk with me. You want to be like the nations? Fine, I'll give that to you. And so now, history is set 
in reverse. And so though he had set his people free, now his people enslaved themselves. We see that in verse three. He rescued his people out of Egypt, but now Egypt is going to envelop them. We see that in verse six. God led his people from the wilderness to an abundant land. Now the promised land is going to become a wilderness. Look at verse six. Weeds will overtake their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. You ever seen an abandoned place before? You ever been to one of those places? They are, they're spooky. Um, I, I, I uh, saw some, some things came up on my feed online um, about these abandoned like, like malls and stuff because malls have gone by the wayside because there's this company called Amazon. Maybe you've heard of it before. You know, so malls are dying. And there's just this, this shot, you know, of, of this huge space and it's got, you can see the glass and the stone and it was set up, you know, back in the 80s to sell a bunch of stuff. And now what's happening, there's vines growing over the escalators. You know, the glass is broken there's graffiti. It's just sort of abandoned. That's the way the land is going to be because of people's disobedience. Abandoned. Weeds are going to grow, over, overgrow those areas that used to be used by people, by the, by the people in, the, in their given, the land given to them by God. The people were given a home in the promised land. Now they're going to be wanderers among the nations. They so wanted to be like them. And, and then God goes on and, and he takes different portions of their history to show them that, hey, I'm not, I'm not just doing this flippantly. Um, I am, in fact, judging you for what you have done. So there's three areas of history that he describes for them. Uh, the first is the place of Gibeah. Look at verse 9. They have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Uh, Gibeah, that, that, is, that is that place where the gross evil, the, the heinous uh, rape of the concubine and that place where the, she was then dismembered and different parts of her were sent to different areas. It's at the end of the book of Judges, Judges 19. That's that place. And what he's saying is, that's your sin. I am judging you in reference to that, the days of punishment have come because you have not repented of your evil. He then goes on in, in verse 10 and he describes another place, Baal Peor. And, and that was again a place where there was the wanderings in the wilderness, the Moabite people sent their women in to seduce the sons of Israel and they fell to their seduction and fell into uh, promiscuous temple idolatry. And so because of that, again, look at verse 10. It says, uh, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on a fig tree in its first season, but they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. It's fascinating. So the first part of the verse, God comes upon Israel and finds grapes in the wilderness. That, that's a rare thing. You don't find that very often. What he's saying is, I was leading you through the wilderness and I was keeping you and I was making you this beautiful vine in the middle of the wilderness because of my blessing. But what happens? You turned again to the nations around you. 
You embrace their wickedness. And notice the end of verse 10. They became as detestable as that which they loved. The things that we worship, the idols that we go after, we become like them. That's the picture here. And then God gives a a, a third place in verse 15 at Gilgal. And this was the place west of the Jordan where the Israelites first set their feet within the promised land. And sadly, it became a place of illegitimate worship. It kind of became a center of idolatry. And that's the irony of that. That's the very first place God led them in. And now that's the primary place of their worship of idols. And so look at what verse 15 says. Their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All of their princes are rebels. And so we find, again, God's discipline, God's judgment here is not simply uh, flippant, casual. It's related to what they're doing. It's, it's just. It's because of what Israel had decided to do in terms of following after the practices of the nations around them. And, and the reality is, is we need to be aware of that as well. How often do we just kind of embrace the modes and methods and, and, and places of security or hope that the world around us would, would tell us we need to hold on to? It's so easy to do the exact same thing. Young people, you're under pressure right now all the time, aren't you? Why? Because your friends, you want to fit in with your friends, you want to be able to kind of go along with with, with the crowd of people who are accepted. And a lot of times that pressure then is, well, do what we do. Act like we act. You don't want to stand out. You just want to fit in. But a lot of times that fitting in is going to be compromising the very things that God's called you to do. You know, to say today that, that uh, you know, someone is, is walking in integrity in the area of sexuality, let's say, well, that's a great way to be mocked, sadly, amongst most people. There are TV series that that have titles that would mock someone being a virgin, when in fact, that is a beautiful, beautiful demonstration of faithfulness and wisdom. That that is a way of of actually living your life in such a way that, that if God were to bring that person to marry later on in your life, you will be blessed in your future with your future husband or wife because of that. But the world looks down on that and snickers and says, oh, yeah. You're just being prude. Or you're missing out. Those are lies. Uh, Maybe it's in business. You know, everyone else in your industry maybe is engaging in a certain practice that is sort of common. It's sort of normal. It's not right. You know it's not right. But how are you going to stay competitive unless you do that as well? You know, maybe that's what it it is. You're going to become like the people around you or are you going to stand and follow God as, as someone who trusts him? What does that mean? It means you're going to have to trust the outcome to him. That takes courage. But sadly, if you're just going to walk like the people around you, you're just going to end up being a wanderer among those people. Look at verse 17. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. Notice how chapter 9 started. It started with... Don't rejoice like the nations. And the idea is, oh, you want to do that? Well, then chapter 9 ends with, fine, then you can wander among those very same nations. So God is disciplining his children. It's, it's not flippant. It's not casual. It is just. 
He's doing it because they are gaining what they deserve. But he doesn't just discipline them. We find that in his faithfulness, he does more. He also now goes on to instruct and warn his people. And we find that in chapter 10. Here we find the danger of prosperity in chapter 10. Notice what it says. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Again, this picture of a luxuriant vine is, is, is brought forward here by the prophet. And yet notice this. The more is fruit, the more altars he made. So you have this prosperity in the middle of the wilderness brought about by God, God's blessing, God's love and care, his provision. And what happens? Rather than attribute rightfully to God the, the produce that he's provided, instead, Israel goes over here. No, it must be this. It must, I'm, gonna, I'm going to worship Baal because I've got to make sure that this prosperity continues. One of the dangers of prosperity is how easily we can forget God. That is so easy to do. Again, how much of the life in our own country demonstrates that? We are possibly one of the, one, the most prosperous nations on the planet. And yet, it seems as though as a whole, our nation is determined to forget God, to kick him out of almost every part of life. And then we wonder why everything's falling apart at the same time. No, God is the one who provides. And here, that prosperity was dangerous. The problem was not the blessing of God. The problem was the blessing itself causing God's people to forget. He warned of that back in Deuteronomy. When he, when he spoke to the people and said, hey, I'm, you're going to be led into the land. When you get led into the land, you're going to be given houses you didn't build. You're going to be given fields that you didn't cultivate. You're going to reap crops that you didn't labor for. Beware, lest you say in your heart, all this I have, I have because of me. It's very easy in prosperity to forget God. What about your life? Is that a pattern that you see in you? Things are going well, and next thing you know, you're just kind of on autopilot. Things are going well. Things are at peace. Things are flowing in your life, and you're spending less time with God. You're not in prayer as much. You're not spending time in his word. You're not gathering with his people on the Lord's day as much. You know, it goes from, yeah, I gather with God's people because I must be there because I want to be refreshed among the people of God. I want to drink deeply of who God is. I want to rest from my work. I want to seek my God. It goes from that to, I think I can make it. Wait, don't we have something going? You know, the church gets emptier and emptier as the Niners do better and better. You know, that's a sign for me. I'm like, ah, maybe I don't want them to do that well this year, come to think of it. Hmm. Don't get me praying against the Niners, people. You show up. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But that happens. 
You know, we, can't, we, we, we go into this kind of, things are going well. And, th- and then the crisis comes, and then we're seeking God, and then we're in prayer, and then we're gathering with his people, and then we're engaging. Oh, brothers and sisters, how much better is it for us to remember there is no life anywhere else? You can't find satisfaction anywhere else. You can't find joy anywhere else. You will find peace nowhere else. Why? Because it doesn't exist anywhere else. So don't let the prosperity God maybe has placed in your life allow you to forget him. You know, when we forget God because of prosperity, you know what else we'll do? We'll, we'll create self-appointed rulers in our lives. That's what Israel did in verses 3 and 4. Surely they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? They speak mere words with worthless oaths. They make covenants and judgments, sprouts and poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. What's happening there? Well, they're saying, we don't have a king. There's no God. It's referring really back to that time when the people of Israel wanted a king. So what did they do? They found Saul. And God allowed this. As much as as it was a rejection of God, he allowed this. He told Samuel, "Let, let this happen. And so Saul looked like the king, man. He had the look. He was tall. He was good looking. He looked great on a horse. He could do all this stuff. And they literally said this. We want a king like all the nations. There it is again. We want to be like the people around us. We have God, but whatever. And that was an epic disaster. Saul goes throughout his days, fearing man more than fearing God. In other words, again, fearing people, much like the people did. They they got the king they wanted. He reflected them. And his life is reduced to essentially going crazy, throwing spears at various people in the temple or the palace complex from time to time. To end his life, the night before he dies, he is with the witch at Endor trying to find out what's coming next because... He's lost the ability to seek truth from God. He dies in a humiliating way. His remains are hung on a wall in a prominent city. As for the king, what can he do for us? Nothing. You've rejected God as your king. In this situation, they're, and now they're in a divided kingdom. And the truth is, in the northern kingdom, the the last five kings of Israel, they were all just completely degenerate men. They couldn't enforce the laws of the land. And frankly, Israel's about to fall. This is, in essence, chapter 10 is describing the end of the northern kingdom. Then we find this picture of, of... Bethel, which is supposed to be the house of God as a place of evil. You see, when the, when the kingdom split, Jeroboam had a problem. He was, he was the king of the northern kingdom. His subjects would regularly go down into Jerusalem 
in order to worship. And so they'd make that pilgrimage down to that temple. And let's face it, as they went down to to the southern kingdom, they're going into the heart of a rival regime. And and that means that there's money that's going to be going to the southern kingdom. That's not okay. Not to mention, as they're in the southern kingdom, they're going to be exposed to southern kingdom propaganda. That's not going to work for him. So Jeroboam did something about it. He established two rival shrines so that the people wouldn't have to travel down to Jerusalem. He set up two golden calves, one in the south of his kingdom at Bethel and one in the north of his kingdom, northern part of the kingdom at Dan. Now, by the time Hosea is prophesying here, Dan has already been overtaken by Assyria. That one's gone. So the only golden calf that remains is at Bethel. And so that's what Hosea is referring to here in verse 5. Look what it says. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as a tribute to, the, to King Jerob. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. It's kind of a fascinating thing here because you'll notice Hosea, in referring to Bethel in verse 5, he doesn't even call it Bethel. What does he call it? It's a little nickname he's made up for it. It's called Beth-Avon. Beth means house. El means God. So it's supposed to be Bethel, house of God. It's Beth-Avon. Avon means evil. So Bethel is in fact... Not the house of God, it's the house of evil. And then you'll also notice how the people are mourning over this golden calf. And there's irony in this. They're trembling over the calf at Beth, Bethel when really they ought to be trembling before the living God. Um, you should tremble before your God, but sadly you've got this little golden calf thing that you're trembling over instead. And notice, it's an inanimate object. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria. That's the language there is, it it can't carry you. It has to be carried. It can't protect you. Assyria has overtaken you. It can't keep you. It can't provide for you. It's a thing. And now it's just become another treasure for the foreign nation to get hold of. The calf's unable to move on its own. It has to be carried. The calf can't protect itself, much less protect you. And it will be carried away. Literally, the word there, it's exiled. It will be exiled. The calf will be exiled. And what's that pointing to? The fact is, Israel, you will be exiled. You wanted to follow your leader, the calf? Very well. Again, there's justice in that then you can follow it right along into exile. Not only does God cause them to see that they've rejected him as king and and instruct them about that, he also brings in this principle of sowing and reaping. And of course, this principle we find throughout the pages of Scripture Uh, But we saw this thread earlier, actually, in chapter 8, verse 7. They sow to the wind, they they reap the whirlwind. That's what Hosea said. But here, he's calling, God's calling on Israel to sow righteousness. But 
Instead, they've been planting other things. So look at verse 12. Here's the call. So with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord. Here he is. He's calling them to repentance. Until he comes to rain righteousness on you. But here's the problem, verse 13. You have plowed wickedness, and you have reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies. Why? Notice this. Because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. And because of this, judgment is coming. So he's saying, what you sow, you're going to reap. What you sow, you're going to reap. The New Testament declares this as well. And that's what we find throughout this chapter, this idea of you can't reap what you don't, in fact, put in the ground. So Israel was producing lots of literal fruit prior to the judgment coming. She's bringing big harvests, but she wasn't producing spiritual fruit. Instead, we're told in, in this section of Scripture that she was reaping a bunch of harvest of strife, lawsuits, and evil toward one another. Israel wasn't producing spiritual fruit, for, so her religious sites became unharvested wastelands. Israel sowed, um, rather than covenant faithfulness, she was sowing iniquity. And so she was reaping injustice from that. And she was also going to reap judgment because of that. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians will say this in chapter 6, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, this he will also reap. So God's saying, God's not going to be taken advantage of or made, you know, made a fool in this whole, on the dealings of people. There's no way around this principle of sowing and harvesting. Everyone knows this uh, in the agricultural world. You cannot sow apple seeds and expect to get avocados from that. It's just not going to happen. You can't plant corn and expect to reap carrots. And the same is especially true when it comes to the spiritual world and our dealings with God. And yet God is faithful through this. So because God is faithful, he doesn't just discipline his people and instruct his people. Finally, we also see that God redeems his people. We find this in chapter 11. This chapter is a stunning description of God's faithfulness. Uh, This chapter actually begins like a well-loved family photo album. Maybe some of you still have those. We've got plenty of them, by the way. Come by anytime you want. We were around in the days of scrapbooking, okay? I know this, this thing replaced scrapbooking. It's called Facebook, right? But before Facebook, scrapbooking was happening. We've got them. And you break these out, and what do you see? You see the kids when they're little. You know, you see, like, this, was, this was the time when I was teaching uh, this kiddo how to, how to ride a bike, you know, this, this is when they were learning how to walk. Oh, this was the scraped knee, and we had to deal with that. And there's all these beautiful memories. Well, this is what we find in chapter 11. Look what, what God says. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. And then you see the turn. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Verse 3, yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. You can see there's a tenderness here. Hosea is recalling an event in verse 1. This is the childhood of the nation. When, when God first chose Israel to be his people, when God set his love upon them, when he called them out of Egypt, 
And by the way, you'll notice, out of Egypt I called my son. That might sound familiar. You know why? Because Matthew chapter 2 describes this as being fulfilled in what Jesus did. 2.14 says, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while he was still at night and left for Egypt. Why? Because they're concerned that Herod's going to kill him. Verse 15, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And we kind of see this pattern throughout the account of scripture. We see there is people in captivity, the original uh, people in captivity in Egypt. What does God do? He rescues them out of Egypt and saves them and brings them on the exodus where they are traveling through the wilderness. And God is teaching them and caring for them and providing for them. And in the same way now, we find with Jesus. He, in fact, is God's son. How did God refer to Israel before Pharaoh when he said, let my people go? Let my son go that he may come serve me. If you don't let my son go, you will lose your firstborn son. That was what was said to Pharaoh. Now we find Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the son. But unlike Israel, he's the faithful son. And as Israel was called out of Egypt, so Jesus comes out of Egypt. As Israel traveled through the wilderness, so Jesus goes into the wilderness. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Do you recall that? There are several temptations there. You realize each of the temptations Jesus endures there corresponds to where Israel failed in the wilderness? Jesus is the faithful son. And our hope rests in him. And so we find this tender description from God. So much so that as he goes on to describe this tenderness, and he talks about the judgment coming, we find in verse 7, look what it says. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call, though they call them to the one on high. None at all exalts him. Verse 6, the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars. He's talking about Assyria that's coming. Assyria is personified as Egypt. They're going to go back into captivity. And then we find verse 8, but how can I give you up where you're from? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are two cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying, how can I leave you to be destroyed like that? Look at the end of verse 8. My heart is turned over within me. My heart is turned over all my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Whoa. What just happened? Discipline is deserved. Judgment is deserved. And yet now, what does God say in verse 9? I'm holy. Yeah, we've seen that. I'm holy, so I will not come in wrath. How is that possible? There's only one way that's possible. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ, that faithful son. This is a picture looking ahead to what Christ will do. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. God alone is holy. His justice is holy. But notice verse 9 tells us his compassion is also holy. It cannot be tainted. It cannot be a a disposition that would 
indicate a lack of justice. No, justice has to be satisfied. And that's why Romans 3 says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation in his blood. What happens is Jesus gave his life. His life was given as a gift to appease God's just wrath. And so the only way that this kind of compassion, this holy compassion can be given is through the redemptive work of the Son, the faithful Son, called out of Egypt, who lived the life that none of God's people could ever live and died the death that all of us deserve. God forgives our sin, not because of us, not because we deserve it. God forgives our sin as we turn to Christ and trust in his finished work. And if you're here today and you've never come to know this Jesus, this could be the day that you would come to him. Turn to him, trust him. Repent of trusting in all the stuff you've been trusting in. Turn away from trying to live like everybody else around you of trying to gain security, peace, grace, joy in those empty places. Come to Jesus. Rest in him. Know what it means to have this compassion, this forgiveness, this grace. This account ends with a new metaphor and a new sound that we hear. It's the roar of a lion. Look at verse 10. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. Uh, This roar is is a a beautiful thing to hear. It's this picture of the king, the lion, the, the reigning one. And he's summoning his children back into the land. And this was partially fulfilled when the southern tribes returned to, from the exile from Babylon. It was partially fulfilled in the book of Acts when the gospel went out to Jerusalem and Samaria where the, where the remnant of the northern tribes lived. And it's being fulfilled now as, as, as believers around the world are summoned by the voice of the gospel of Christ. But it also kind of makes you think of, or at least makes me think of, of the Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan, Right? Fantastic story. Remember that? So, so the kids, uh, you know, Peter and Susan and, and Lucy, I, th- I think that Edmund was away at this point in time, but they're in the beaver's house. And the beavers are describing this Aslan, the ruler, the king. And they're on the run from the white rit, witch. So they, they want to be kept safe. So the beavers have them kind of safe. And, and they're trying to, trying to travel to the, to, the, to the stone table. And in Beaver's house, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are describing Aslan, and and Mrs. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Uh, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what we find here. God isn't safe. He's not oblivious to your sin and his holiness. He will judge. And yet, he's not safe. 
He's holy, but God's compassion cannot also be extinguished by your sin. In his holiness, if you turn to him in Christ, he will rescue you. And so the call to us today is to turn to him, to run towards God, not away from him, through Christ, to see God alone. The only hope for Israel, as we see in this section, as we've seen earlier in Israel's history, and as it progresses from there, the only hope for Israel is the promised son of David. The only hope for Israel in the world is the son of David who has now come, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the lion, the king. Turn to him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this amazing account and prophecy and declaration of who you are. We pray, Lord, that we would be astounded by your faithfulness, that we would not take it for granted, that you would be the one who cares for us in such profound, overwhelming, thorough, mighty ways in spite of us, not because of our faithfulness, but because of your faithfulness. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.